Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Uh, I was talking to my mom right before the service tonight. She, I, she told a story that I've never heard her tell before. If she told it, I've forgotten it. And it's, it's apropos of nothing. I just wanted to share it. Uh, just kind of uh, grabbing on to some, some, something Pastor Mike just said. She was, uh, this was years ago, many, many moons ago, when she was teaching Sunday school or, or getting ready to order some curriculum for her class, and she was bouncing it off the pastor. She wanted to order some curriculum from a particular guy, and the pastor said, he's okay. And then mom's like, well, what's wrong with him? Oh, nothing. He just, he just makes it sound like God can do anything. This was his complaint. Yeah, his curriculum's mostly okay, except it gives these young, impressionable children the idea that God can do anything. Wow, we. Guess what? <laughs> he can, right? Yeah, I've told, listen, I've told you that story. It was, it, was a, it was a crucial moment in my journey to Christ, even though I was a very young kid. Uh, probably nine, eight or nine years old, and I'd asked my Sunday school teacher in that same church, by the way, uh, why does God let there be things like tornadoes and earthquakes and floods? And her answer was, there's just some things God can't do anything about. Now, and what am I, as a nine-year-old, I'm assuming she's my teacher, she's an adult, obviously she's speaking the truth, it never occurred to me to think, I think she's wrong about that. It just rocked my whole worldview. Uh, and I think I can tie that in with what we're talking about tonight. Before you go shooting your mouth off, before you preach the gospel, you better know the gospel. You better know what the Word of God says. I was, uh, let me start with this story. I was driving around yesterday, uh, and I had the radio on, uh, Moody Radio, 102.5, Great News Radio, and they do a lot of Moody programs. And anybody ever listened to Chris Fabry live? You have a midday talk show. I don't listen to him on purpose very much, but since that's where my radio is, uh, I'll catch him if I happen to be out and about while he's on. And he had a guy on there, and I missed the first part of it, so I'm not sure what his whole story was. But I picked it up where this guy was, was giving his testimony. And he was, uh, oh, I think at the time he must have been in his 20s. He uh, went into, he was in a restaurant and he saw two young men, college students, sitting at a table across from each other with a Bible. Maybe they both had Bibles, but there was at least a Bible on the table. And this, this sight just grabbed his attention. And he, uh, just, I guess the, I'll, I'll share this uh, just to give it some context. As, as, as the conversation with Fabry continued, I realized that the, the thing he was on there was to talk about his deliverance from homosexuality, from the homosexual lifestyle, okay? And so he wasn't one of these militant activists, but he was, he, he was well, he had very much embraced this as who he was. And uh, he saw these two guys with the Bible, and so he went over, he was just so curious at what they would be doing, reading the Bible in public, so he went over, he says, are you reading this? And they said, yeah. He says, this is a Bible, right? Yes, this is a Bible. Do you take this seriously? And he wasn't challenging them. He wasn't getting ready to unload on them, he was just fascinated. And they said, yeah, sit down with us. And so, uh, in the course of this conversation, here's what impressed him. 
these two college-age guys knew the Word of God. They knew what the Bible said. They knew what they believed. They knew what Christianity was. And they explained it to him. And he was so gripped by their expertise and their passion that he went out and got a Bible and started reading it. And said the first thing that really, um, that, that he became convinced of, convicted of, was that the Bible really is true. It's authoritative. So he was converted through reading the scriptures and through the testimony of two guys who just happened to be reading the Bible in public. He was thoroughly converted. He's in ministry today. Uh, But because he was so convinced of the authority of scripture already, when he encountered scripture that confronted him, he's like, I just got to give that up. I got to give that up. And he used this phrase. I'd never heard this distinction before, but I think it was fascinating. He said, the attractions are still there, but there's no more affection for those things. All of my affection is for Jesus Christ and the word of God. That's, it just, man, this, this guy's testimony just really moved me. But I want to contrast that with people who say things like, in fact, I was listening to Robbie while I was cleaning the kitchen uh, last night or this morning, I can't remember when it was, I was doing it both. We, we make a lot of messes, so it gets cleaned twice a day. Anyway, <laughs> I had Ravi on, and he was telling a story. This wasn't just a generalization. He was talking about a conversation he had with a member of his uh, audience who said, I could never follow or worship a God who would send somebody to hell. And over the course of conversation, finds out this guy was bitter because his grandmother had recently died. And as far as he knew, she died an unbeliever. Now see, when you say something like that, you're not basing your belief or disbelief in God on anything like facts or evidence. You've made up your mind the kind of God you want. People want to find out what God will do to them, what God will do for them, what God will require of them before they commit. But that's not based on something that's true or something that's false, is it? We have to take God as we find him, if he is real. We have to take the word of God for what it says, not for what we want. We can't make up our mind, I will believe in a God that does this, 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 and doesn't require this, this, or this. Which is exactly what the world does, you understand. The word of God is alive and powerful. The written word of God is peculiarly able to convert people. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Uh, shared this quote with you. I can't remember who it was. Uh, Gypsy Smith said this. There are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people will never read the first four. I'll tell you a quick story about a friend of mine, then we'll get into the word. It's a dear friend of mine, longtime friend of mine. And he, when, he tells, when he gives this testimony, he gives me too much credit, I think. When he, when he talks about the part I played in his conversion. 
But uh, I met him out at Parkland College, and we were working together, and we'd spend hours talking about everything, including God. And he was a good guy and raised in a you know, nominal Christian home, uh, but I knew he wasn't a true believer. He knew he wasn't a true believer. But we were talking about everything and, and uh, you know, acting much smarter and wiser than we were at the tender age of 19. And one day we were talking about love. What is love? Five, oh, we did that one Sunday, didn't we? Anyway, I, and I was making the case that I wasn't sure it was possible for somebody who didn't know God or believe in God to truly love. And he was saying, no, I disagree. And I said, yeah, but you're a Christian, right? And he'd say, yeah, well, I knew he wasn't. He deep down knew he wasn't, but he was raised in home, raised to believe he was. And I said, well, there's a Bible verse, and I can't remember exactly how it goes. Uh, but it's, I said, uh, Let's go up to the library. I think there's a, there's a Bible up there. And there was. It was a gigantic Bible on a pedestal. It's probably not there anymore. But I went to 1 John 4, 7, and 8, which, guess why I remembered it? Because it's a song. I didn't tell him that. I just act like I had all this knowledge. But I couldn't remember. I got to the part where it said, uh, here's what it says. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love God does not know, he who does not love does not know God for God is love. I couldn't remember if that last part says, I thought, I thought maybe it said, he who does not know God, sorry, does not know love. He who knoweth not God knoweth not love for God is love, which is close, but it was wrong. It was backwards. I said, and I kind of knew it was backwards. I said, let's just see what this says. So I go up there, I turn to 1 John 4, 7 and 8, and I said, yeah, see that? And he tells me later that this was a, one of those moments for him in his journey. He knew that you could read the Bible. He never knew that you could know the Bible and use the Bible to employ what you have read in a conversation. And this was something that had a much, an outsized impact on his journey to Christ. He is, by the way, today a seminary professor teaching others in the word of God and Christian history specifically. And uh, there's a lot more to his story, obviously, than that one little encounter. But like I said, it had an outsized impact on him. And I mentioned the Bible thing because there's coming up next month, there's this Bring Your Bible to School Day, which I encourage you to encourage young people. And it might be, they might tie that in with, I don't know, Bring Your Bible to Work Day. And, And it brings me back to this guy who I heard about on the radio was sharing how he saw these guys with the Bible, it probably would not have had the same effect if they were huddling over a Bible app on their phone or their iPad. You know? And I'm not getting religious about this. God's not going to say, oh, that's not a real Bible. The Word of God is the Word of God as far as you reading it. But there's something about people seeing it. You know, you can pray quietly under your breath over your food, or you can put your hands and you can bow your head and close your eyes so people know you're praying. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. There's, you know, get, you always got to check your motives. But the, anything we do publicly, there's an opportunity. There's at least the potential for God to use that moment to touch somebody else. And we will come back around to that idea at the end of this message. Anyway, tonight, I do want to look briefly. <laughs> I want to look briefly at the longest chapter of the Bible. The longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. You don't need to turn there quite yet. Because we're going to look at something else first. This psalm, uh, by the way, was probably written by David. It's, uh, it doesn't say, it's, it's technically what they call an orphan psalm. 
meaning it, it doesn't say a psalm of David or from the treasury of David or anything like that. But there is a lot of internal evidence, certain phrases that only David used in other psalms, certain themes. There's a statement in there about, I talk about your word with kings and the like, and indicating that the author himself was a king because it's not some peasant that's going to be having a conversation about the word of God with kings. And uh, anyway, it's, it's a fascinating piece of poetry, probably 10 times more fascinating if you read Hebrew, and I don't. But it is an acrostic. There are 22 stanzas of eight couplets. There are 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And each one of these stanzas uh, is based on the letter in order. So like for, you know, the first one, Aleph. Every, uh, the, the first stanza, every couplet in that stanza, all eight of these couplets, begins with the letter A. And in the second stanza, stanza, everyone begins with the letter B. Aleph, Beth, Gimel, and I don't know what the rest of the Hebrew alphabet is. It goes all the way through in order. Uh, so there are a total of 176 couplets, which, which are rendered in 176 verses in our translated book of Psalms. Obviously, it doesn't work out that way in English. I wish somebody would try it. It could probably be done. Emily, do that in your copious free time, all right? Do an English acrostic of Psalm 119. Of course, you'll have to skip four letters uh, because there's 26 in the English alphabet. 26 minus 22 is four. A little trick I call math. Got that from helping my kids. Anyway, total of 176 verses and almost every single verse, almost every single verse contains one of the following words. Law, word, statute, judgment, testimonies, precepts, or commandments. Ordinances is in there once. Way or ways is in there a couple times. But mostly, it's law, word, statute, judgment, testimonies, and precepts and commandments. This is a love song to the word of God. Everything is about the word. 172 times that I counted, and I may have missed one or two of them. 172 occurrences of some variant of that word in 176 verses. The whole psalm is about how good God's word is. And what it is really is an expansion of Psalm, one, of psalm 19. If you want to turn there, you can do that first before we look at Psalm 119, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward." Uh, we've talked about this before. I've never done a message on it, but it's super important when you read that passage and then when you read all of Psalm 119 to remember that when we are talking to an unbeliever, somebody who might be a little reluctant to fear the Lord, it's not a good idea to apologize for something the Bible says. And what I mean by that, and people do it with the best of intentions. 
uh, I wish the Bible didn't say this. But since it does, we have to do it. I don't like it. I'm a believer, and I don't like it any more than you do. But it is the Bible. That's not the right approach. That's basically saying, well, God is arbitrary. This was kind of stupid. God didn't see into the future and realize how a verse like this would hurt people's feelings or offend people. I don't like it either. No, the law of the Lord is perfect. And that law has the power to what? Convert the soul. My arguments don't have the power to do that. Neither do yours. Uh, Your personality doesn't have the power to do that. All these things can be used. But the word of God is the only thing powerful enough to convert the soul. And so this is what I love about this psalm. This psalm is, I love your law. I love your word. Your precepts are good. They are beautiful. Uh, On and on and on for 176 verses. And we are not going to read the whole thing tonight. But I'm saying, trust the word of God to do the work that only the word of God can do. And trust the spirit of God to do the work that only the spirit of God can do. All right? This is up to him, not us. We're just, we are, we are the vessels. Let's go ahead and read some of Psalm 119. I will read the first two stanzas. Uh, so beginning in verse 1. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They also do no iniquity. They walk in his ways. You have commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. Oh, that my eyes were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of hearts when I learn of your right, when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Recognize that part, don't you? Blessed are you, Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. And it doesn't slow down. It just keeps going. Commandments, words, judgments, testimonies, statutes, precepts. Some highlights from this psalm that I'm sure you're familiar with. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. Also from Psalm 119. The entrance of your word gives light. Maybe you've heard this one. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The psalmist here, David probably, loves the law. He loves God's word. God's commandments are good and right. But remember this. Think about this. He's writing about the law. Do you remember what we read about the law on Sunday mornings? When Paul was writing it in the New Testament, he said the same thing, that the law was good. The law was perfect. It simply lacked the power to convert or change us into new people. Now, does that contradict what David wrote in Psalm 19? The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. He's talking about conversion of the soul. Then you've got to get into the word study. Is he talking about your mind? Is he talking about your desires? Rather than, he's not talking about the new birth. That wasn't possible back then. 
What we have is a law that convicts us, that reveals God for the perfect, wise, and indeed beautiful God that he is, but also emphasizes the gulf between us and him. And the psalmist, you read it all the way through, and you will get this theme. You will see that the pattern he, he, he is, he is uh, following is that he's not claiming salvation or righteousness because he is keeping the word. He's acknowledging God's mercy throughout. But he wants to walk in God's blessings. He wants to walk in a manner that pleases God. To live as he was created to live. And so he's feeding on the word. And he's dedicated to living this out. He wants to do God's word because he loves God. Kind of sounds like something we've been talking about on Sunday mornings, huh? And how much more should you and I be feeding on all of God's word? We've got the New Testament. We've got a better covenant. We've got the Psalms. We've got the prophets. We've got a a lot more to digest and feed on than David did. We read this Sunday, Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of God dwell richly in you. This brings me back around to the beginning, which is our witness. Remember that what impressed this guy was the boldness and the openness of these guys who had their Bible, but also their expertise of these young believers. And again, we never know what it is that's going to cause that switch to flip for the unbeliever. It could be the most unlikely thing. We can easily picture having a long, serious conversation with somebody and bringing out the most powerful arguments that we have learned or memorized from somebody. But it might simply be something that you remembered a verse because you sang it in Sunday school and you look it up in your Bible and the person who's with you says, wow, you can know the Bible like that, huh? And it kind of kickstarts something. We don't know. What's important? Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. So that you are full of the word of God. So that you've got an answer for every situation that comes up. Live your faith consistently. So that they are also, um, what gets their attention is your lifestyle. They can see that you are living for something bigger than yourselves. And as long as we are doing these things consistently, we don't have to say, I'm going to do this, and this is going to convert this guy, and if it doesn't, I don't know what to do. You just keep doing what you know to do, and you let God decide which moment he's going to use. Look at this. Uh, Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is a super famous passage. It torques me when people... uh, use the, they make fun of the term born again, like it was something that got invented in the 70s. Oh, this guy's a Christian, not him. He's more than a Christian. He's one of those born agains. Jesus invented this phrase, okay? And we're going to read it here in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, 
a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now that's the part we're all super familiar with, right? Look at this next verse. Wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And I think, number one, the wind is clearly, I believe, an illustration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He is moving. And even though we can't see him, we can see where he's been. We can see the effect he has when he is moving in our vicinity, right? Even if we can't predict it, we can sure appreciate it. We can sure notice it, notice him. And it's not Calvinism either. We say when we read this, well, see, God's going to blow in and he's going to save who he wants to save and he's going to damn who he wants to damn. That's not what it's saying either. We know what God's will is. God's not willing that any should perish. There's two sides of this. What moved you to accept Christ, to confess him as Lord and Savior, might be something wildly different from what moved me to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. But at the end of the day, it was the Holy Spirit that moved us both. He used a different person. He used a different argument. He used a different circumstances. He used a different background. You would have never seen it coming. And many times, the person who had the biggest impact on you probably didn't realize the, they were, the impact they were having on you until the decision was made. Then you can look back and say, wow, I can see this all kind of started when I saw him, when I listened to her, when they did this. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we can understand the first part. God's going to come in and he's going to do what he, he's orchestrating this thing. We trust him. But when it says, so is everyone who is born of the spirit, it means two things. One is, and again, mainly, kind of what we just said. That we are saved when the spirit of God reveals Christ to us. Whatever means or whatever people he uses. And this effect is observable. You shouldn't be the only one that knows you got saved. Right? Second, though, is this, that we should have that kind of effect on people. Just as the wind blows in and makes a difference, we should make a difference when we walk into a room. There should be an observable change when we are on the scene, and there will be, if we are prayed up and the word of God is dwelling in us richly. You have to believe that you will make a difference wherever you go. Praise and worship team, you can be coming up here. I'm going to wrap this up by saying a couple simple things. Number one is, you cannot live the gospel if you don't know the word of God. That's one reason to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. We can't, we can't do it. We can't live it if we don't know this is, these are words of life. It tells us how to live. 
And of course, we sure can't preach it if we don't know the word. You know, I got to tell you, when I got saved, I was 12. And what moved me, as you only talked about, you, you might have been moved by, there might be a number of different things. For me, the main motivation was pure fear. As I had a very real, strong, solid belief in heaven and hell. And so for me, it was once you convinced me that when I make Jesus Christ my Lord, I don't have to worry which one of those destinations I'm going to end up in. I've been rescued. And then, so because of that background, it became very important for me to save my friends. It's like now that I knew, it's like I can't possibly let so-and-so go to hell. Even at the risk of losing my friends, I would share the gospel with them. Here was the problem. I knew next to nothing about the Bible. I had manifested an appetite for it at different times in my life, usually thanks to Sunday school. We would start, I've told you this before, we would start to read, we would write, read like a little piece of Samson's story. And it was just enough to make me think, is there more of Samson in the Bible? And so I would dig through the Bible and find it and read his whole story. And then same thing with Elijah. So I knew these stories. But as far as doctrine, the plan of salvation, all I knew was this. If you will invite Jesus Christ into your heart and ask him to be your Lord and Savior, he will save you and you will go to heaven. And I actually led people to the Lord with just that little bit of knowledge. But if they had a follow-up question, I had nothing. It's so important. I was preaching what little gospel I knew. But there's no excuse for not knowing more tomorrow than you know today. Let the word of God dwell richly in you. It is a process. It is a lifetime. And you just trust that these, I'm never going to remember it all. You will be surprised what you remember when you are called upon to remember it. These are the things that's what Jesus promised. I will call these things to your remembrance, but we've got to get them in us. Pray for what we're praying for is supernatural recall. That these things, that these words we have in us, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. If I ask you to quote a particular verse, and by giving you the reference, you might not know it. But once I read it to you, you'll go, oh yeah, I know that one. Just didn't know the reference. I Ten times, a hundred times rather, you know what it says than know the address. The address can be very useful. As uh, Greta, when she was sharing the uh, how to share Jesus without fear, do you remember that part where how important it is to show them in the Bible rather than just quote it? So it's good to know these things. But start where you are, but never stop. No matter where you are, no matter how well you know it, let it dwell more and more richly in you. Because the more full we are of the word of God, the easier it's going to be to share. And it's so, we remember, first of all, there are people's lives who are depending on this. People's eternity is in the balance, right? But again, share God's word. If you come up to somebody and the first thing you want to talk to them is, you know, maybe, maybe you're, you've got a strong conviction against alcohol and a person comes up to you with a beer in their hand and you've got an opportunity to talk, you don't start with, you know what? It's really a sin to drink. Right? Don't, don't start with, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. You share the love of God, you share the gospel, you share the truth. And again, there are some people, the spirit goes, spirit moves, 
It's like the wind. We don't see exactly where, what God's using. And there are some people who we referenced at the beginning of this. They're not looking like this one guy was. Something about seeing those guys with the Bible caused a hunger in this one guy. Other people, all they're looking for is a fight. They're not looking for a reason to believe. They're looking for a reason not to believe. You still share the word of God. You might be just one link in the chain that brings them to belief. It might take a tragedy. It might take something extraordinary to get their attention on God. You be satisfied that you are living consistently and sharing what you do know at every opportunity. Stand up with me. We can't do it if we don't know it. We can't preach it if we don't know it. So know it. Don't just read your chapter a day. Read it. Learn it. Pray about it. It's good to read it out loud, I think, to hear it at the same time you're reading it. But absorb it and get it in you for your sake and for the world's sake. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.